Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. And show the world your heart. Express yourself to art. And show the world your heart. Express yourself to art. And welcome. You're listening to Art on the Air on WVLP 103.1 FM and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. This is our weekly program covering arts and arts events in Valparaiso and throughout Northwest Indiana. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City. Aloha, everyone. We're your hosts for Art on the Air. Our theme music you heard is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Underwriters for Art on the Air are Valparaiso University's Brower Museum, regional art patron Mary LeVan, and our landlord, Walt Breidinger of Paragon Investments. If you'd like to find out more about leasing space in this historic building, please give Walt a call, 219-462-5821. I'd like to thank them for their generous support. Thanks to Greg Kovach, WVLP's station manager, and Tom Aloney, vice president, radio operations for Lakeshore Public Radio. Art in the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant through South Shore Arts and is part of the National Endowment for the Arts. If you're interested in being a guest or sending us information about your arts, arts-related event or exhibit, please email us at artontheairwvlp at gmail.com. That's artontheairwvlp at gmail.com. Our program, along with all of our programs, are streaming live at wvlp.org. Art on the Air is rebroadcast on Monday at 5 p.m. Our shows are carried by Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM, every Sunday at 7 p.m., and you can hear them at lakeshorepublicradio.org. Our entire show archive can be heard at our website, breck.com slash AOTA. That's breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com slash AOTA. And make sure to like us on our Facebook page, Art on the Air, WVLP. Art on the Air is always looking for financial support. We'd like to thank our current supporters. If you're looking to support Art on the Air and, of course, the WVLP station, we'd be happy to become part of the WVLP family anytime. Esther and I especially would invite you to become an underwriter of this program in particular. We have information on our website at breck.com AOTA. You can find out support information there or at wvlp.org support. So don't just be a WVLP and Art on the Air listener. Become a supporter or underwriter in whatever amount you're able to do so so we continue to bring you this great content and this great local programming. And like I say every week, don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. And you'll feel so good about supporting Art on the Air and the whole WVLP family. Join the WVLP family today. Art in the Air is very pleased to welcome to our show a Telly Award-winning and Emmy-nominated spokesperson who has a passion for people uh, with her show uh, that educates, motivates, makes a difference one topic at a time. She brings her a wealth of experience and is seen frequently on Lakeshore PBS. Please welcome to our show, Art in the Air, Whitney Reynolds of The Whitney Reynolds Show. Hello. I am so honored to be here with everyone. We're Aloha. So, we're so excited to have you. So, well, what our audience would love to hear, Whitney, is your journey. You have kind of a, an interesting journey of how you came here. So, like, how you got from where you were to where you are now, your whole journey of working along the way in school and all that. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things that started for me at a very young age. 
I was one of those little kid dreamers that when most girls were dressing up as Barbies, I was pretending to be Sally, Jesse, Raphael in my <laughs> living room. And I would pull out, um, you know, my toilet paper roll with a tennis ball on top to be my microphone and make whatever friend neighbor of mine let me interview them. And so I would do that in my living room and was always encouraged at a very young age to dream big and to dream deep. And even as a small kid, I knew, like, I knew there was this big dream in my heart, but there was also like other dreams, you know, like I still wanted to play sports. I still wanted, there was other things I still dreamed of, but TV was my longing for a career. And that was very unique. I would say um, to most people that met me as a five to eight year old living in a small town in Oklahoma to have this aspiration to be a major television show host. So at fast forward a few years, I would sneak behind the couch when my mom wasn't looking and watch Jenny Jones. Then it kept evolving the stream. It wasn't, it didn't stop with Sally just Raphael and went to Jenny Jones. And I had this fascination with women in television and how they crafted their stories. And the reason I said sneak behind the couch, because my mom, you, very Bible Belt area and um, really didn't believe in the hoot and hollering that was going on back in the day on TV, like the Jerry's, Jerry's, right. even though I could kind of hear the ring of Whitney, Whitney one day, I knew there would be some tweaks with my future show. So fast forward a few more years, my family went through a very challenging time, one that impacts not only me, but other people in my family. So I actually, um, I keep that story a little close to chest right now, just because it does impact other people than just me. But our family went through a very pivotal moment that was extremely hard and very hard for the for being where we live and very hard for the year that everything happened. It was not 2020, it wasn't Chicago. So I'll just keep it as that. It was a very hard situation for the location and time. And I had this connect the dots moments in my 20s that happened. I was like, I didn't have this dream as a kid. And I also didn't have this challenging childhood and that's really what developed the Whitney Reynolds show. Now, going back, like in my years of, you know, from middle school on to where I am now, I always stayed course of television. I went as an intern to Good Morning America. And then I started anchoring a morning show outside of my hometown. I lived outside of Dallas and got to be in market 161, <laughs> where I learned literally how to talk on television for two hours a day. I was their morning anchor, and then I was a reporter producer. And that was really some of the seeds that were teaching me not only how to talk, but the right questions to ask, how to communicate with a viewer where, you know, they want to know more, but with news, you only have a limited time. So how do you craft that story within that time? So I learned a ton whenever I was a morning anchor. And then I moved here and I started weekends with Whitney, which wasn't around the town show. I've always always had the gift to gab and I love knowing the intricate details of someone's story but like I said it was this moment uh, in Chicago where I had this platform and I literally it was like the dots connected it was like playing connect the dots but in my head of like okay I don't accidentally have this show and I didn't accidentally have that hardship and for years I was told what I went through, you, you're not that person anymore. You don't have to 
you don't have to say that's part of you. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is what I need to be for other people. I need to be that safe space for all stories that people know that their story matters and the challenging times can really facilitate a lot of hope. And so that is when the Whitney Reynolds show formed. And I remember it was like the day before I met my husband and I was getting ready to pitch the network. And whenever I say the network, it was WTTW at the time I was going in to pitch them. And I remember just being kind of nervous about taking this leap into something so different because I was told that will sell Whitney. What sells is you being at restaurants and trying food. What sells Whitney is you being out and around town and talking about the newest movie or fashion. But I knew my passion and my story didn't collide in that way. And I was called to do something more for me personally. And I have so many friends that are doing those type of shows and I love it because that's their mission, but that wasn't mine. And so I pitched PBS and they picked me up and it was a life-changing moment for me because that's when I stepped into what I know I've been called for here on this earth. And our show has now been on 11 seasons. Lakeshore PBS is where we call home now. And the strategic move to Lakeshore was really time slot related and how do we actually grow the mission forward? So I need a station that's actually going to lift me up and make us you know, grow in the way we need to. And what's really ironic about the timing of this interview is it's even um, more timely than ever because Lakeshore actually helped launch us nationally. And we hit in January 20 of 21. And that is a whole new playing field for us. And, you know, people always ask me, they say, are you so excited? You're like famous now. And for me, (laughs) it's not about that. It is not about that at all. It's actually about reaching viewers with our mission. And when, when I got the call about national, that's what that meant to me. That was that many more households that get to know that their story matters. And so that's really, that's how I got to where I am and a little bit about the Whitney Reynolds show. Real quick. Stories are so touching. I mean, and they just range such a different, so many different emotions, but they're, you just feel the heart of them. Real quick, one thing I'd like you to tell our audience is your uh, story meeting your husband, because I think it's uh, an amazing little love story. Yeah, you know, um, the story of meeting Dave is really one that you would see in fairy tales. And I I have to say, like, it sounds silly and so cliche, but it was really um, a moment that I believe and will tell people to this day that love at first sight does exist. And I walked into a coffee shop after a chain of events of a flat tire, going to get my Mac picked up, them saying it needed more time, them noticing my tire had a nail in it. They said, you need to go to this place because there's a coffee shop nearby so you can log into your computer. And so literally this, like, actually it's one of my friends that is no longer with us. He passed away by cancer, but I feel like Aaron was a big angel in my life that day because he told me what coffee shop to go into while my tire would get fixed. And I walked in and I saw this wonderful man in rain boots. And (laughs) literally it was the day before I was pitching the show to um, public television and making a lot of moves in my life. But I, I asked, I sat up next to him and he said, you know, can I hook your computer cord in? And that was literally the the first day of the rest of my life. I mean, we were inseparable from that moment on. Three months later, he proposed. And within a year to date of our first I Love You, which was November 2nd, 
We said, I do. And um, we went so fast forward in the dating and marriage scale that we took three years before we decided to have kids because we were like, we should probably get to know each other's middle names here, you know, (laughs) because everything else had been so fast. Uh, But he really having a companion to do life with and for him to be with me on day one of starting the show has been an incredible incredible thing to have alongside because he knows the hardships you know when people are like oh my gosh it happened because you know when when you make the big headlines it looks easy but he has seen me on the days that i'm crunching numbers saying okay we actually have to add three more interns to this season because we just don't have the budget to have this (laughs) crazy camera person i really want and he's seen me have to grind and fight for this and also support me on the moments when there is loss because, you know, the national stuff, I was told no so many times before that. And actually on my journey, one of the people that supposedly discovered Oprah early on, I met with them. I was so excited to have a coffee. I thought the meeting went great. I thought, yay, I already have my show. He's going to tell me how wonderful I am in this email tomorrow. And he wrote me back and said, you don't have it. And I said, what? I mean, this was literally, I've already had my show. And Dave was with me that day when I got that email. And of course I was devastated for about five minutes and then I got mad. But, you know, <laughs> with that, it, he's been with me and to have a partner that has seen me through all this. And then the day I got the national news, also many victories we've been able to celebrate together. It's, it's an honor to have him by my side and do life with him. And I, and my hope is that partners out there everybody, everywhere have that kind of partnership that whatever relationship you're in, you're happy that your partner's walking alongside you. You know, uh, where do you produce the show at? I think people would be interested in hearing that. Yeah. So ironically, I, when I had the twins, we had had this studio in Evanston and I, and I started my show in Evanston. I love the Evanston community for so many reasons, but I had my show in Evanston and right before I delivered the twins, I got a call that the studio that we rented from was going to be shut down. And it was kind of this horrible timing of I'm literally about to have twins. I'm nervous. Like sponsors were already nervous about like, is she going to like not want to come back after this? Like there was a lot of unknowns in the air. Of course I knew like, I love what I do. Everything's going to be okay. But this really threw a big wrench into it. So we, the studio closes its doors and I go to a friend of mine that has a restaurant with the brick walls. And I said, can, can we tape here maybe one or two seasons? And we did it and it was wonderful, but it literally looked like we taped in a restaurant in front of a brick wall. So I came back home and I said, David, how do we make this work where I can be a really good mom and also a really good TV host? And it was an interesting thing. Cause I said, what about the house? He said, oh, no, nope, 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 not going to do the house. I said, but wait, we have this really great vacant wall that I think we could build out and we could bring in a team and do it in like seasons of so many months on, so many months off. And a fun fact about me is I used to work for the Baylor football team when I was in college and I did video for them. I traveled and I got to catch tapes and mail them off to planes so the team the next week could see it before the digital age. But with that, they do this thing called two-a-days for football. And it's where they practice literally two times a day and it's the most intense time. And that's what we call our taping season. We call it two-a-days. And so we actually tape in my home. And right now it works for us. I think come 2021, we will probably have a dedicated studio space just for the Whitney Reynolds show outside of my home. But for right now, we still call literally 
I tell viewers they welcome me to their home. Welcome <laughs> to my home. Literally. <laughs> well, it sounds like you and your husband are good compromisers because that was a that was a no at first. <laughs> it was a total no. It was a heck no that invades our privacy that gives people an idea where we live. I mean, it was a it was, it was a lot of issues we had to work out and including like a security plan taping during COVID. It was crazy because how does that work? Well, we had to hire SD Innovations to come in and come out because they had to come in on the front end and on the out end. And it was just crazy. Like it's been a, such a learning curve. I will be excited to have a dedicated studio space, probably one very close to my home, but having its own space. But as for right now, it is literally the bookshelves behind me. <laughs> And yet it looks like a regular TV set. I mean, I, I bet you if viewers didn't know or you didn't tip them off to that, it looks like you're in a nice home setting that could actually be in a studio. So I think it's uh, it works. Yeah, we've seen a lot of studios recreate this look, and it's been really fun. I'm like, well, if they can do that there, then maybe we can do it in a warehouse or something. So we'll see what 2021 brings. I think with this new reach, I, I've realized that there are so many stories out there that need to be told. And I think we're going to see a year of a lot of growth for us in a good way. And part of that is we are very limited to when we can turn on the lights and off the lights based on my family's schedule. And we do that very strategically. And I would love to be able to do this every day. So I think that's what we'll see in 2021. But again, negotiations are happening with my husband. Well, there you go. <laughs> How many shows do you do a year, Whitney? Tell our audience. So, yeah, so I do 13 Whitney Reynolds Show productions. I also do some specials on Amazon with the Whitney Reynolds Show, which air just on Prime. And then I also host Whitney's Women on iHeartRadio. So you'll see that monthly on the iHeart stations. And the goal would really to be to create more come 2021 and be able to something that the pandemic has done for our show, which you'll see. I think you see a little bit of it this season, but you'll really see it roll out in January is package pieces. I had this, you know, aha day during the pandemic when all these celebrities started moving their stuff virtually to, huh, I used to be a reporter. Why don't we do package pieces? And they turn out beautiful. We get to tell these in-depth, quick three-minute stories of like, you know, whatever the topic is that add a whole new element to the show. So it's been really cool to add that into the show as a new element. What's the balancing act then with having the studio now in your home with the children is it has that become easier or I mean, yeah so that's a great question it is easier but it's easier because I'm a planner and it's easier because I'm type a and so with that it also uh, allows a very small fault line for error so <laughs> I say that if a guest cancels this season it happened on accident there was a an accident that came up within the family and especially when you're taping in a pandemic you, you need to know so what we had we had different people booked like we had you're definitely booked on the show here's your time and then we had people that were like your story is really cool and we also think it would fit into the show be on call so we did that this season because we were like we need an on call because we're only in the studio this amount of time and we actually wrapped last friday and I was so nervous, like, we just got to get through this season, you know, like, we got to get through it. And so we just had to be a little bit more planned than regular. But like, that's the problem. Like, let's just say my in and out, which is like the intro and outro to the show. If it was bad, we don't just get to pop it back up and pop up. I mean, it, we are literally in studio and I have a team, some of which people have been with me 10 years that they have other jobs because we only do 13 shows a year. So they know that they are in my studio for this six weeks and then they can 
do whatever else. So that's where the room for Eric is very, very, very small. Mm-hmm. And we just, we got to get it right on the front end. So um, luckily, luckily we haven't had too many issues and these package pieces also help us make up for timing in case there is anything that's come up. Tell us about yeah. some of the guests you had on the show, uh, you know, both this and especially with your season that you just wrapped, but in the past and, you know, what impact they have and tell us about those. Yeah, there are so many faces. You alluded earlier about the stories being deep and it's hard because when you do a show that's focused on peeling back the layers of a story and finding hope, even in the tragedy, it's, it's really it's a hard thing. And when I get done with a taping, literally I'm exhausted because I have given my all to each story. And I have to say literally every story that comes through our studio is one that impacts people for all different reasons. And even the ones that I'm like, Oh, maybe that could have been stronger. It's remarkable that those are the ones that get the emails of like, this person touched me in an unusual way. And here's why. So I always really look forward to Tuesdays after the show airs in our home base of Chicago, hearing like what emails come through and what people thought of like the different guests. But really this, this season has been one that because of the pandemic, we turned around faster than ever. Normally we do a spring and a fall season. We tape the fall and the spring and then vice versa fall airs in the spring. So because of the pandemic this year, we pushed everything back. Whenever I went to Florida, I went to Florida for three months. It was when they thought the sun killed coronavirus. <laughs> so, yeah, remember those days? So we um, we went to Florida and I pushed everything back. I came back and I turned this season around so quickly. And what was cool about that is the topics are so relevant because we end the season with one nation under grief. And we talk about the Black Lives Matter movement. We actually have, um, you know, a mom that lost her son in a shooting with devastating police. story. Just yeah, devastating. very yeah. devastating. But then we also have a black police officer that's like, listen, I joined the force because I want to see change. And then we had Reverend Jesse Jackson on that show and we were able to turn it around so quick. It was amazing to see how relevant it's going to be this season. So I, that's one of the things that has been remarkable about this fall season is the turnaround time. And so actually our season finale is in two weeks weeks on the 16th. And I'm, I'm so ready to have the world kind of watch that. And there is some healing stuff that goes on with it. And you realize we're all human at the end of the day, we're humans. And, um, and so that's, that was really one that touched me this season. Also now a dear friend was a mom that I had on in the spring and it's airing right now, Cassandra Tanner Miller, her estranged husband came in and thought he killed her and went up and shot their child 10 times who was a baby. And that story, as I'm grappling with all the details on set, cause it's running through my mind as I'm a mom and the, just how many domestic violence pe- situations we've heard on the show and to hear her strength. And she knew she was here for a purpose. She knew that her, her son's life was not a lost life without a cause. And she is going to change laws And so she's been one that will forever touch my heart and will forever remain a friend of mine because I am in her corner to do whatever I can to help her move her mission forward. And coming up soon, they are going to pass a law in his name, which is amazing. So those are well, her strength. Her strength was I mean, the strength of the mother for the child is so evident in that story. I mean, if the story didn't it didn't 
it's not where I thought it was going to go. You know, there was a moment where you thought you knew where the story was going to go. And then she heard her child's voice and it just, I don't know. It was like, it's so moving. It, yeah, that was that that was an interview that will forever impact me. But then there's been some like our Emmy nomination, which was veterans because we love taking topics and putting a different spin on them. And with veterans, we we did a show featuring like, what do we do when our veterans come home from serving? How do we support them in ways where they are get back to work and they get to you know start rebuilding life? And that was actually our Emmy nomination. So there I mean, literally, I, I have a wall of some of the awards we've had and some of my magazine articles. And I literally look at that wall in amazement of not me, but the stories that have been told on the set. Like I tell our interns and our staff that comes in, I mean, the staff has been with me such a long time. They're like tired of my stories, but because I've literally <laughs> had the same people for 10 seasons and then every season we have new interns, but I tell them, I feel like we're on miracle ground here. We are creating change through these delicate issues. And it's so important that we get it right. It's so important that we, make sure that we're seeing the hope through these tragic situations. And every season we have a moment where some of our camera people forget we're on, they're on camera and they're crying. And I'm like, Hey God, stay with me. Stay with me. I'll stay to your parts, please. Because it's just one of those touching. I really feel like I'm in like the presence of miracles whenever we do the show. So do you do your own research? Do you have somebody researching for you and how much time do you devote to research? Yeah, so I um, do my own research. I also have some people that do other research, but as an owner of the show and understanding what my E&O insurance looks like and how important that is to get it right and the research element right, I do a lot of my own research. I also have um, attorneys that work on the team. We also have um, a producer, a senior producer that's been with me literally like for the 10 seasons. She's older and wiser than I am in many ways. And she, she makes sure that she brings that voice of Whitney. I've lived through a little bit more than you have to the show. And, and I love that. I welcome it. And, but the research, you got to get that right. Just to understand like really, really what you're dealing with and how, how do we find positivity out of this? You know, we got just about a minute left, Whitney, but uh, we want to, of course, hit your website and uh, your show schedule. But uh, one thing is about the people that you work with. Uh, how many do you have working in, with you in the studio to produce the show? Yeah, so we have anywhere from 10 to 25, and it was 10 this season and normally 25. And um, the 10 this season, we even cut back to six in the final weeks because of just the numbers and what I felt comfortable with, with people being in my home, even with the COVID cleaners coming in and out. It just got really scary at the end. You know, you turn on the news and we were dealing with so much and I did not want to have anybody, anybody getting hurt on my set. And so we really, um, we mic'd people out, you know, on the vestibule. I mean, <laughs> you name it, we did it this season. We took temperatures, we but these, the six people at the end were really just like, yeah, go team. And then some of the team did not even come in, but they do other jobs. So normally they would have been in, but like our editors, one of them actually back in Missouri and, you know, but we're still able to do Zooms. We're able to, he actually messaged me just a little bit ago because one of our finals for our finale for Amazon is hitting. So he, but it's amazing what this has all taught us, how we can work in our best abilities, all different ways. Very good. Tell us your website, when your show is scheduled on in our last moments here. Yeah. So WhitneyReynolds.com, you can always find anything about the show, what's coming up, our events, 
extra inspiration, I really want to encourage everyone that hears this to log on to Instagram and follow at Whitney underscore Reynolds, because that is your daily dose of inspiration that you need through our stories and also our pictures. We tell a lot about the show and you get mini clips right there. Very good. Well, we're so pleased to have you on uh, Art on the Air. That's Whitney Reynolds from the Whitney Reynolds Show, uh, available on Lakeshore PBS for those of us in our local audience and also available online. And uh, we appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing a little bit about your story, Whitney. Yeah, yeah, you know, thank it's, so much. thank you. It's really neat to have the opportunity. I always ask people to share their story and to share mine with you has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Whitney. Thank you. You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM.
Next we have on Art in the Air, someone who, uh, well, is not a stranger to anyone in the region that's been around for a while. Uh, he's been a region personality, music journalist since 1979. He has a 38-year career as a columnist, feature writer, and probably best known for his tri-state publication of Midwest Beat Magazine uh, for 29 years until 2007 when I think it went online. Uh, he's heard on multiple stations, uh, WLNR and Lansing in the past, but currently on 89.1 Lakeshore Public Radio, which, of course, this show is also heard on. And now he produces a show on WIMS, AMF needle drop and everything welcome to our show art in the air uh the one and only tom lounges aloha tom hello how is everybody doing we're doing great it's a good day well we always we are surviving that's the main thing <laughs> we keeping sure that rock rolling so tell us your, we want to hear your journey story i don't think a lot of people know a whole lot about you because you always are interviewing other people and i think people would be interested in hearing a little bit about you tell us about how you got from where you were to where you are now well, Reader's Digest version, I'll keep it as brief as I can. It's been a lot of years. Um, I went to Highland High School, graduate 1977, and it was a teacher that actually put me on the path that led me to where I am. I didn't have a whole lot of goals when I was in high school, didn't know what I was going to do. I took a class that was required. It was a one-semester class called Radio and Television Communications. The instructor was Mr. Joseph Fetty. Uh, I think the class only lasted one or two years, so it seems like it was fate that I happened to be in the right place at the right time. I didn't have a whole lot of ambition in that club, in, in that class either, but uh, he saw me doodling on my folders. I would always doodle the KISS logo or Aerosmith or Average White Band, all those wonderful little you know logos that the bands had on their albums. And I, I clearly was not a graphic artist in training because my logos were pretty terrible. But he recognized me and said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm just, you know, doodling. And he said, well, what are you interested in? I said, I don't know. He goes, well, what about music? You seem to like that. So one thing led to another. We started talking about job possibilities and the fact that I was in a class about radio and television. And he said, why not do radio? Because you got a pretty good voice. Why not do radio? You love music. And I said, well, I don't know. Well, who was my favorite DJ? Of course, at that time, it was Larry Lujak. I, everybody wanted to be old Uncle Larry. So uh, a few days later, he shows up in class and he hands me this canary yellow book called Super Jock, The Story of Larry Lujak. And uh, I read it and it inspired me. And there was a lot of communication between Mr. Fetty and I over the next several weeks. But long story short, I spent spring break studying uh, transmitter law, wavelengths, uh, you know, all the different things you needed to do in radio. Because back then, you actually needed an FCC license. Uh, just like a pilot needs a license or a driver needs a license, you had to have a license to turn a microphone on. It wasn't like today where everything's deregulated. So I studied all this really boring, dusty stuff. And I went to the Dirksen Building in Chicago. And on my first attempt, I actually got a third-class engineer license with the FCC. And I thought, the world is my oyster. Now I'm going to be a big, famous rock and roll jock. Well, Attitude adjustment, found out that it's like any other profession. If you don't have experience, they won't hire you. Well, how do you get experience, you know, if you can't get hired? So uh, I cashed in a few favors with my dad, who had different connections. He was a banker, and he happened to know a guy that was a newscaster at WLNR in Lansing. So I started out kind of cleaning the studios, doing news grunt work, writing, you know, PSAs, all the stuff you start doing in radio. And it led to an opening uh, to engineer for a black gospel show. And I took it. It wasn't rock and roll, but it turned out to be the right show, the right place, the right people at the right time. Because had I started, had I gotten the job I wanted, I never would have succeeded. 
because by doing black gospel, I learned so much about the origins of music, not just rock, but everything. And today I'm a big jazz fan. I can appreciate a lot of the gospel sounds that we were playing at the time. Uh, blues, I'm enamored in blues. So the gentleman who was hosting the show, I can't remember the name of the church, but his name was Reverend Harold Patton. And he was the guy that hosted the show I engineered. And he would have me uh, just, you know, he talked to me after and before the show about who these people were, uh, Andre Crouch and the Disciples, Mighty Clouds of Joy, Thomas A. Dorsey, the, the godfather of uh, Chicago gospel. And uh, it led me to track down other things. He also turned me on to Quincy Jones and Robert Johnson and Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Ornette Coleman. And I'm like, who are these people? And it, it led me down many paths. He, he sprinkled breadcrumbs for me and let me discover all these different forms of music, which I have embraced over the years. A lot of people know me as a rock guy, but I'm so much more than that. In fact, when I'm at home, I almost never play rock and roll. I play a lot of Miles Davis. I play a lot of Charlie Parker. That's the stuff I chill to because it's not work for me. If I went home and put on Led Zeppelin or Boston or Rolling Stones, well, that reminds me of work. So I'll put my feet up and play some some miles, kind of blue, or I'll play some Dave Brubeck, take five or something like that. And that gets my uh, my Zen moment started. So, do you always have music going on in the background or do you? Not really. Um, a lot of times I like quiet just because when I'm writing, uh, as Larry mentioned, I, I am still the writer for the Times, the music columnist and, and one of the feature writers. I started in 1982 there with my first column and I've been there every week since. But when I'm writing, I don't like to have any noise. It kind of distracts me. So I, I, I sit in quiet and solitude and I write. And, and then if I'm writing on an artist, obviously I'll be playing their music. Uh, but I like a lot of quiet time. And I spend a lot of time with my dogs out on the deck and things like that. It's a good thing. <laughs> so you, yeah. got, so uh, you started with a station. Then how would you uh, migrate to other stations in your career? We'll talk about some of that. Okay, well, that started me. And then, uh, again, I wanted to still be a, a rock and roll jock. That never left, even though I was learning all these other wonderful things. And uh, Headwish Records in Calumet City had just started a program about a, yeah, maybe a year earlier called Night Rock. And it actually was on 106 FM, WLNR, when it originally started and had a lot of famous jocks, uh, well, soon-to-be-famous jocks, that were starting part of that. Well, they went on to do other things, and I decided, well, I want to do that. So I went to Hagwish, and I met Joe, who owned the place, and talked to him about doing it. He said, you have to be hired by the radio guys. I said, okay. So I met them. Well, there wasn't any openings, per se. So again, frustrated. Now I had experience, and I actually had more knowledge of music, but still couldn't get a gig. And they had Night Rock News, which was the spinoff print version of Night Rock Radio. Mind you, when I was in high school, I was not an English major by any means. <laughs> I uh, couldn't couldn't do anything. I mean, it's terrible, terrible English, terrible writer. So uh, they said, well, why don't you do something for the magazine? In between all that, I started trying to write a program called Rock and Roll in Retrospect using the only effect I had, which was a reverb uh, unit. And so it was like Rock and Roll in Retrospect, spec, 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 and <laughs> the story of an artist. So I do Bob Dylan, Elvis, Elton John, uh, Rolling Stones, and I would start the day they were born. And it was like a, it was almost like a documentary. And I'd play the first song they were famous for. For instance, Elvis was Old Shep. And then I would bring it all the way up to where they were that day uh, in their career. And it was long. A couple of them were a few hours long. 
Well, I was very ambitious and nobody really wanted that kind of program from a young amateur. So I took those, all the hours I invested in that and I turned it into a print narrative and I got my first stories in Night Rock News. And about three months later, they were going to shut it down. And I thought, here we go again, another kick in the teeth. And Joe, I don't know why he rolled the dice on me, but he said, if you can make the magazine get out of the red and into the black, I'll give you three months. And he goes, and you can run it. So long story short, I did. And we kept Night Rock News going for a number of years until I left it. I left Hegwish and went into the nightclub business. And shortly thereafter, it had shut down. And years later, I shouldn't say years later, about two years later, um, the magazine was gone. People missed it. And I contacted one of the principals that were involved in the sales end of it. I said, why don't we do this ourselves? So we kicked off what became the Ileana Beats with a really terrible logo. It was a kick drum with Ileana written in it. It was awful. Um, And we put that out. And then it simply became the beat. And it eventually morphed into the Midwest beat once the digital era hit, because it was already a magazine in New York called The Beats, even though I had been printing under that name longer, he owned the trademark on it. So we threw Midwest in there and the rest is history. Shut it down in 2007 because, uh, again, MySpace came out and Facebook was soon to come. And it just, there was no room for a free magazine at that time because the finances were killing me to keep putting. It was costing thousands every month. And we relied on the local bands and they were already investing all their their time in MySpace and Facebook and figuring out free ways to get their name out. So we shut it down. And then a few years after that, of course, I started with Lakeshore in 2012 and decided to resurrect the name The Midwest Beat. And that is now the name of the celebrity interview show that I do there. And you do that how often? I do it every Tuesday and every Friday. Tuesday is 7 to 8 p.m., Friday is 1 to 3 p.m., and the Tuesday show gets an encore repeat at 7 p.m. on Friday nights as well. And then all of that is archived at lakeshorepublicradio.org. Uh, go under shows or music under the under the drop downs and find Midwest Beat, click on it, and all my shows are there. As is our show. We have on Lakeshore. You can find us uh, there also. You so. sure juggle. You juggle a lot, don't you? I, I do juggle a lot. I just started another radio program a couple of weeks ago called Needle Drop at WIMS AM and FM. And uh, that is 100% vinyl. You will hear no MP3s, no CDs, no tapes, no nothing. Uh, it's me and my collection of albums, uh, many of them culled from the record store. I'll decide uh, what I want to play that night, and I'll go to the stores, and I'll pillage the, the used bins, and I'll pull stuff out, and we'll play it. I have a young lady that uh, is just starting into radio, and because of my stress level in trying to get in, I've always tried to help young talents no matter what station I was at. And uh, she has a lot of promise and a lot of passion. So Mariah Land is my, uh, I guess, sidekick or or co-host or whatever you want to call it on Needle Drop. And we're in our third week this week. And we're getting response. Excellent. Well, you brought up your record store, and actually you opened another one in Michigan City, and I know I contributed a few albums to you from my, <laughs> my home. Uh, some of them which I knew you had a uh, quick story for our audience. I had a, a flood in my uh, home many years ago, and I had, I had a collection of, well, 
almost 500, but 400 of those albums uh, got uh, a bath. And so I had to just haul them out. So anyway, at some point after we were selling that house, I said, you know, I'm just going to give them to Tom. So I dropped him off. So tell us about the, well, first of all, your first store in Hobart and then how it matriculated also into another's opening. Well, the first store in Hobart started about almost three and a half years ago. And it became, uh, it was just something I wanted to always do. I, I loved working in stores. As I mentioned, I started uh, with not, with Hegwish Records in Cal City, and to supplement my struggling uh, journalistic careers, which wasn't paying a whole lot, I worked in the store. So I got to learn how to do record stores. I had had a brief uh, tenure, I guess you'd say, at Highland Records, which was in Sir James Court, and that lasted about six months to a year. And then I went to Hegwish, and I started working in Cal City, doing the grunt work, opening the crates, pricing records, putting them on shelves, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, went over to work at a couple of their other stores. There was one in Whiting on 119th Street. I worked with a gentleman named Bob Story, who also taught me a lot about uh, dance music at that time. That was before my East days and my real DJ days. So he taught me a lot about dance music because that was his forte. Then I went to work at the Hammond Record and Tape Exchange, which was also a subsidiary of uh, Hegwish. And I learned more there from Fred Sickhart, who was uh, uh, he was a German guy that uh, just taught me about all different styles of music. And then I opened up or I helped open up uh, the Maribel store with the crew there. And at that point, I left Hegwish and went into the nightclub world. Years later, I came out of the nightclub world and I went to work for Woodmar Records in the mall. And I was an assistant manager there and I became the import buyer. I learned a lot from a guy named Rob Fishback, who had been their manager for years. And Rob uh, taught me more about ordering and things, stuff I hadn't done with uh, with Hagwish or with Island Records. And I learned a lot more about the running of a record store and displays and things like that. And then I opened up uh, another store that became my store for Woodmar, which was in Cherville, over by the Teebles uh, intersection there, until the big boxes came along and put all the record stores out of business. So long story short... Over the years, I've amassed a lot of uh, cool stuff, swag, memorabilia, uh, personal items that have been signed by different artists uh, I've interviewed or had on the radio or toured with or worked with or booked. And I've got a lot of great stuff. Well, I got married. We moved into the house and my wife already had her house fairly uh, the way she wanted it. (laughs) And I got my, my office and I got a little section of the basement and I had way too much stuff. So like George Carlin said, you got to find a place for your stuff. So I opened up a record store to hang my stuff and it became my man cave. And it basically, I always tell people that it's like, this is my man cave and I fund it by selling records. So I took 8,000 of my own record collection and dumped them into the shelves. I hung up all my cool stuff, my signed stuff from Prince and Ted Nugent and John Denver and my vest from Waylon Jennings and all the different things over the years I've amassed. And uh, now people can come in there. It's kind of like a it's like museum. a museum. I tell stories. People say, well, tell me about this. Tell me about that. And I'll tell the story behind the postcard from Debbie Harry. Or I'll tell the story about the interview with Prince or getting the vest from Waylon when we played uh, Pinochle together on the bus. So there's all kinds of stories. And then we happen to sell records, too. Well, it took off. We have our own little Internet radio station there, Internet channel, as part of the region radio network is called Midwest Beats. It used to be called the Vintage Lounge and I program it and then we go live from the record store. And in pre-COVID days, we would have acoustic concerts there 
and we would broadcast those live and it's fully licensed. Well, then COVID hit and uh, right about the time it was about to hit, we decided to expand and open. We signed a contract for a store in Michigan City. And just as we were prepared to open on April 1st of 2020, I, in fact, became the April Fool because COVID hit and we were <laughs> shut down. So we did a soft opening in July, very soft, and struggled you know, for months now to keep the rent paid and the nibs go on and things. And we finally did our grand opening two weeks ago. And we were in phase five and things were starting to look up. And here we are, numbers rising and uh, clientele down again. So we're, we're like everybody else out there. We're struggling, but we're very proud of both stores. And Hobart is doing very well. Michigan City shows a lot of promise. You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. You know, re- before we uh, move on to some of the other things you're doing, briefly talk about your DJ days. I also knew you from that era, too, and where you were and how you did that. Well, the DJ days started after Hagwish. When I left Hagwish, I got a call to uh, from, the, from the many owners, a couple of the owners of Point East, a big nightclub that had been part of the Poison Apple chain, which was legendary in the Midwest. And as the story, I came in after Point East was built, and, and Point East was already a disco. And disco was, it was very fleeting, but it was very powerful. So while I was with Hegwish and while I was with Night Rock News, we sponsored things like Dance Your Way Around the World. We had all kinds of different disco-themed events. And I was a part of helping create that with the house marketing guy, Mark. And uh, they had a spaceship in the middle of the dance floor. The dance floor was actually designed and modeled after, uh, designed by the guy who created Saturday Night Fever's dance floor for the movie. And it was modeled after that. It was fabulous. The the spaceship DJ booth actually shot smoke out, dry ice smoke, (laughs) which filled the the club. And people danced in the neon was crazy. And they had rain lights and they had a half a million dollar uh, thunder and lightning show, which I was told was second only to the one in Atlanta, Georgia at the Omni. Uh, So it was a pretty intense place. It was three levels. I believe it was 1600 capacity and it was the place to go. It was the, it was built as the ultimate disco. And it certainly was the hottest place in all of Chicagoland and Great Lakes. Well, disco came and went, it died. Uh, The first disco demolition was actually done at Point East before Comiskey Park. A lot of people don't remember that, but it happened a few months earlier. And, uh, well, now that disco is dead, what do you do with a big building? So the owners called me and said, well, you're the rock guy. Uh, You came highly recommended from people we asked. Do you want to be part of the team? So I went in there. I met the guys that were part of the team, and I became part of it. And we did bands like Humble Pie, uh, Plasmatics, uh, Ronnie Montrose and Gamma. We had B.B. King. We had Muddy Waters there. Iron Maiden did their first date in Chicago there. Um, girls school metal band out of Germany and uh, there was a lot of people involved it wasn't just me by any means I was just part of this great team in this great club and that lasted until April of 83 and I was DJing part-time in the disco to get back to your DJ question I started DJing with Mike Gora Uh, I'd never DJed in the club and Mike kind of let me in the booth once in a while when I was guesting over there and I got to hang out with him and watch how they mixed but when Point East shut down we went over, the management team went over to a place in Chicago Heights, and it was an old uh, an old place called, um, gosh, I can't think of the name of it. Anyway, 
it was, uh, oh, Tin Cup. It was called the Tin Cup. It was a restaurant bar. And it became Jubilation. And Jubilation was opened on Halstead Street. And I became music uh, director. And we took built a beautiful DJ booth. We were one of the first to do video uh, music, video mixing, because uh, MTV was brand new in 83. And I happened to know a lot of people at MTV. And I did some stuff with them. So I got some videos. We were able to put screens in and had the first video club on the South Side. And then we brought in a couple of great mixers. Brian Middleton was a teenager. He went on to do lots of great radio work, did the hit mixes for B96 and was on Kiss FM and all these other stations. Brian was just a kid when I met him. So uh, we went in and, and formed a partnership and did Sounds to Go, a mobile DJ system that we did weddings and all that. That's where I did my mixing. And then eventually it led to Club Dimension in Highland, and I was the mixer there and DJ and booking and promotions guy for a number of years before that closed. So it's been a long journey, and there's been many clubs and many magazines and radio stations and things over the years. In the 80s, I interviewed a lot of people, went on location, uh, wrote for every national out there practically except Rolling Stone, worked for Song Hits, Hit Parader, um, Word Up Magazine, uh, so what else was Scholastic Magazine, uh, Video Rock Stars, all the big glossies. You could go into the Riberty Drugs, which was still around then, and uh, you'd see all these magazines on the rack, and about five of them in any given month would have my byline in it because I was working with everybody from Prince to Salt and Peppa to Chuck Norris to Ralph Macchio to Duran Duran, MC Hammer. I was uh, I was interviewing everybody. It was it was a, it was a very good time. Uh, unlike today. Well, what a lucky bunch of dominoes from that first teacher who said, what are you going to do? I mean, what an amazing story. Joe Fetty was a great guy. I, I both had the, I, he's just started when I, I graduated in 73 and then I worked with him when I was at Highland. So he's a great guy. And uh, yeah, what a great way to set you up. So do you have, do you have a quick Prince story? Well, I, I interviewed Prince on the Dirty Mind tour and he was working a new single at the time called Uptown, and he just happened to be playing at the Uptown Theater in Chicago. Now, this was way before 1999, way before Purple Rain. He had not crossed over yet. So the fact that we were even covering Prince at that point in what was predominantly a rock magazine was kind of unheard of. So a friend of mine actually said, hey, you got to listen to this guy. He's really an incredible guitar player. You're going to want to talk to him. So he and I went to the show. And it was interesting because the interview was set up and we went backstage and there was some kind of skirmish at the door. I don't know what exactly happened, but because of my connection to the music business, the guy who was working the stage door says, can you stand here for a couple of minutes, make sure nobody goes in and uh, I'll be right back. So for about three minutes, I actually was the security guy at Prince's dressing <laughs> room door. And I have the security pass that he gave me still. It's at the store on display along with a signed pass for my backstage access. So the print signed that, and there's a copy of the magazine. Now, I sold that story about eight, nine times to almost every magazine out there because it was one of the last interviews Prince did before breaking big. Uh, he didn't like to do interviews. But uh, if you look at the magazine article, you'll see photos from the 1999 and Purple Rain era. But my interview that I wrote was based on evergreen quotes. So I would talk to him about growing up, how he got into music, what he did, blah, blah, blah. And then we would take all those those evergreen quotes that never change, and we would insert stuff from the publicist about the film and whatever. So we would create a very current piece 
that would talk about his latest project, but still be rooted in his past. And we were able to recycle that interview many times. So I made a lot of money off Prince as far as print uh, went. And as far as a person, he was very, very sweet, uh, very soft-spoken, very cordial. We walked back in. It was my friend and I, and he offered us, he had a tray of like fruit and vegetables and uh, I guess they were smoothies before smoothies were around <laughs> like that. Uh, but he was very health conscious, would not allow us to take pictures, though. But he was happy to sign the backstage pass. And uh, we spent probably about 20 minutes with him, maybe 25. Well, Tom, we need to probably wrap up. We're coming to the that. end of our uh, thing. Uh, quickly tell us a website where we can get a hold of you. You can follow me at TomLoungesEntertainment.com. You can also follow the record store at TomLoungesRecordBin.com. And there's numerous Facebook pages for, there's uh, the record bin, there's a record bin live at the record bin, there's a Tom Lounges page, there's uh, a needle drop page now we just started. Google Tom Lounges, L-O-U-N-G-E-S, <laughs> don't forget the S, and uh, you'll find me. I'm, I'm all over the internet in some capacity, even though I can't navigate it very well myself. Well, it's a pleasure having you on Art in the Air. That's Tom Lounges, our regional radio personality, heard uh, uh, regularly on Lakeshore Public Radio on Tuesdays and Fridays and also now at WIMS. Tom, thank you so much for doing Art in the Air. Thank you. All right, thank you. You've been listening to Art in the Air, and we'd like to thank our guests this week. Art in the Air is heard every Friday at 11 a.m. and rebroadcast Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP and Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. Thanks again to Greg Kovach, WVLP Station Manager, and Tom Maloney, Vice President of Radio Operations for Lakeshore Public Radio. Underwriters for Art in the Air are Valparaiso University's Brower Museum, our landlord, Walt Breidinger of Paragon Investments, and Mary LeVan, Arts Patron. Art in the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant and the National Endowment for the Arts. If you're interested in being a guest or send us information about your arts, arts-related event, or exhibit, please email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H, dot com, or contact us through our Facebook page. Your hosts were Larry Breckner and Esther Golden, and we invite you back next week for another episode of Art on the Air. Aloha, everyone. Have a splendid week. Express yourself to art. And show the world your heart Express yourself through art And show the world your heart You're in the know with Esther and Larry Art on the air today Stay in the know with Larry and Esther Art on the air our way Express yourself through art And show the world your heart Express yourself to art and show the world your heart.